we've distinguished this facet of One Health, and we have expertise here at CSU that really puts us at the top of any university in the country. And that's this aspect of our companion animals, the ones that we're seeing primarily over in the veterinary teaching hospital, often get diseases that are very similar to the diseases of people. So, for example, dogs very commonly get different kinds of cancer as they age. And the types of cancers they get are often very similar to the types of cancers people get. So we can take advantage of that in a way by having the world's elite veterinary clinician scientists who recognize the facets of those diseases and also being humans, beings themselves, kind of realize this is the same process that might occur in humans, but then partnering with experts in the human health side of those diseases to come up with new therapies or treatments that not only help the animal, but can be translated over to the human disease. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And on special occasions, we get to invite friends from other colleges. And today we've got a special guest, Dr. Sue Vanderwood. Sue is a faculty member in microbiology, immunology, and pathology. She's a university distinguished professor, a distinction that's worth mentioning. She's the director of the One Health Institute, and she's a longstanding PI in microbiology as well. And so we're going to talk about all those things and more in the next 45 minutes or so. So, Sue, thanks for coming and joining us. Great. Indeed. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Of course. We're Exciting tickled to, to have you. Yeah. <laughs> So we want to start with, with this mix of, of who is Sue and who is Sue the scholar. But I want to start with sort of a big problems approach. And as we were just talking about for you, the big problems fit in multiple buckets because you, you wear many hats on this campus. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the things that drive your research agenda, I'd love to hear a little bit both about your One Health leadership activities, but also your work in your own lab. Great. Well, thanks again for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here and very honored to be one of your external guests. And I've worked with many, very first. <laughs> many faculty yeah. and many students in your college over the 30-ish years that I've been here. So I appreciate it. Um, so in terms of my research in my laboratory, that has changed over the decades to kind of meet different needs and different questions that are important for the day. But um, I am a veterinarian, I'm a veterinary researcher is my background. So my work typically revolves around some issues that are relevant to animals. Um, But of course, a lot of why we do research has a human centric focus. So um, there are big issues that you can answer questions for both humans and non-human animals. Um, In my laboratory, I've studied primarily diseases of felines, um, both domestic and non-domestic cats, and particularly viruses that they're susceptible to. Um, And I've studied the pathogenesis of those viruses. So how do they infect and why do they cause disease or don't cause disease? Um, How would you diagnose them? Um, How are they spread from animal to animal? And what, what impacts do humans have on the ecology of their habitat that might change the dynamics of disease transmission. That sounds kind of esoteric, but when you think about now we're undergoing a global pandemic where 
not only humans are getting SARS coronavirus, but we know domestic cats and wild cats are very susceptible. And we've really studied the interaction between domestic cats and wild cats. And we know that diseases can transmit from, from one species to the other. And so it's, it's pertinent for what we're seeing today and also wondering about whether if domestic cats or wild cats get infections, can it spill back to people? And maybe even with new variants that have emerged in the new species that may cause more problems for us in terms of disease risk. So that's kind of in a nutshell. And of course, when you have a career that spans three decades, you do a lot of other different things. So I have a student right now who's also studying um, a disease called ringworm in that affects a lot of cats, but also is zoonotic, so it can transmit to people. It's more of a, it's not a real severe disease, but it's very prevalent and it's especially important in low income um, populations and also large populations of cats that are strays. Mm -hmm. So we're, um, we're using some of the same tools we use with vi the viruses or we've developed with the viruses over the years such as molecular diagnostics and looking at the genetics to relate one specific isolate to another. We're using that on this, this fungal infection that hasn't had much interest or study in the last 20 years. So, so we kind of fall into these interesting problems and try to apply what we know to them uh, in different contexts. You know what's neat is, as you describe your own work, it's a natural precursor to me to the One Health role, right? Exactly. It's my lead in to tell us more yes. about your, your One Health leadership roles. Yeah, so One Health is, um, there's two components to the One Health definition, and it's problems that occur at the intersection of human, animal, and environmental health. Hmm. So we think of COVID, for example, it probably emerged from people being exposed to animals in a way that may be related to incursion into environments where typically humans weren't going, so into forested areas or something like that. And then once there was a spillover event, it rapidly transmitted across different uh, communities. And, you know, you all know how it's been managed in different contexts. So there's been politics and communication and social sciences involved in addition to public health and individual health. Um, and then it's as I mentioned earlier, it's spilling back into animals and that may have this cycle. So that is a very, very um, kind of iconic One Health problem where environment, human and animal health are all in engaged. And so by studying things at a higher level than one specific discipline, then you can look at things in a broader picture and try to anticipate unanticipated consequences either of your interventions or of this, the events in the first place. So the second part of One Health is it not only has these different elements, human, animal, environmental health, it requires interdisciplinary work. So people that are studying all those types of sciences, plus communication specialists, plus economists, plus you can think of any discipline here at CSU, any department, and it can contribute to study of a One Health problem. So the institute that we have here at CSU considers many different kinds of One Health problems. Infectious disease is an obvious one, but um, agriculture, for example, has a lot of One Health issues because it's particularly around livestock. It has environmental consequences and environmental factors that would feed into animal health. And of course, we're raising those animals 
in order to, to serve human health. Climate change is going to have big, big impacts on human and animal health. And so, for example, in Colorado, the forest fires displace wildlife. They displace companion animals and livestock. At the same time, they impact human health. The air quality can impact everything. And of course, climate change really is resulting from environmental changes that is human-centric. So those are a few examples of the different things that we're focusing on in the One Health Institute. And we're, we're bringing together teams of folks from across different colleges in an interdisciplinary center to facilitate their work however we can to make them more successful or to have a bigger impact. You know, I love this notion of health as an interconnected phenomenon, right? And it's countercultural in some ways because we tend to find ourselves in silos and maybe because it's the only way we can ask questions mm -hmm. that we can actually answer. But the reality is this great big crazy world out there is, is not quite as siloed as mm -hmm. you like to pretend sometimes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited about your work for sure. Now, I have the pleasure of, of sitting with Sue on a number of different committees. Usually it's talking to our respective laptops in the mm -hmm. world. But I want you to talk maybe just a little bit more about the natural animal model story because our, you know, our, our shared work on CCTSI, I think our listeners would be interested in. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we've distinguished this facet of One Health um, that is unique and we have expertise here at CSU that really puts us at the top of any university in the country. Um, and that's this aspect of um, our companion animals the ones that we're seeing primarily over in the veterinary teaching college um, or in the veterinary teaching hospital often get diseases that are very similar to the diseases of people without any in induction of experimental animal models as we may think about of animals in research. So for example, dogs very commonly get different kinds of cancer as they age and the types of cancers they get are often very similar to the types of cancers people get with the same causative factors, the same type of progression, and often the same kind of therapies. So we can take advantage of that in a way by having the world's elite veterinary clinician scientists who recognize the facets of those diseases and also being humans, beings themselves, kind of realize this is the same process that might occur in humans, but then partnering with experts in the human health side of those diseases to come up with new therapies or technologies or, or treatments that not only help the animal that might be suffering from that disease, but can be translated over to the human disease. So for example, we have a group here that has done work in a mouse model with a type of bone cancer called osteosarcoma. And the mouse model is you know, a basic science type approach for evaluating what types of therapeutics might effectively treat that disease. When they came up with a candidate drug, it was already had been used in animals for other purposes, so they started using it in dogs that were suffering from osteosarcoma. They saw very quickly that it had significant impacts in decreasing metastasis rate. So now they're partnering with um, physicians down at the Children's Hospital in Denver to see if that drug can be added um, to augment the course of therapy for children with the same disease. So it's very exciting It because of the attributes of the disease in our veterinary species. It often can be a more rapid way to translate these new discoveries into the human health field. And because we have this great partnership with UC Denver, um, it's a way for us to facilitate those interdisciplinary exchanges. Wow, 
That's pretty cool. One, one more question, if I can. I'm uh -huh. cheating because I know Sue pretty well. <laughs> to talk about the animals as sort of environmental sentinels story, if you would. Yeah, that's a great, um, it's a great segue into a um, very uh, interesting symposium that was held in the beginning of December at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C., and it had people from veterinary, human, environmental sciences, data scientists, um, and many other specialists talking about how animals living in our environment, you know, our pets often sleep in our beds, they're eating our same foods, they are living on our couches, so they're exposed to the same kind of environmental factors that could initiate certain disease processes. Again, cancer being one, but also metabolic diseases that occur during aging, um, renal disease are sometimes caused by toxins, etc. And because animals are often on the ground, maybe near higher concentrations of these chemicals, and because of their hygienic practices, maybe they're <laughs> ingesting a few more of the toxins, um, they might develop symptoms and syndromes associations more rapidly than people. So one thing that kept coming up at this meeting was the canary in the coal mine, which many people know about that, that um, story that miners would take birds, canaries into the coal mine because they were very sensitive to gases that might be they might be exposed to that cause toxicity. So by observing the health of the bird, they could tell whether or not the, the gases were accumulating that might cause detriment to their health. So it's a very similar type of approach of thinking of, can we look at multi-toxins or exposures that are occurring in our companion animals that can predict um, some diseases that we might want to be concerned about in humans in the same environment. And the beauty of this early warning system, of course, is it's twofold. Again, it's not that the animals are guinea pigs for the sake of human health. It's an early warning for their health as well. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a collaborative approach with our companion animals. Yes, <laughs> definitely. So yeah. yeah. It's yeah. kind of neat to see. So, so Sue, I'm, I'm going to pull us off campus and out of the professorial role for just a little while. And, We'll sort of roll the camera back to your child. And we really want to talk about, you know, influences, mentors, significant um, moments along your pathway. You know, we, we sit here and say, wow, we're, we get to talk to a university distinguished professor and, you know, but, but there's a pathway there. And I want to talk a little bit about the pathway, if you don't mind sharing some stories. Sure. So I guess um, when I was 12, my mom and dad decided to move to a farm in rural Virginia. And these, my parents grew up in New York City. Um, and I had three younger sisters. And my dad actually is, was also a scientist and he was working in the National Institutes of Health. But um, when he got this position there, they made this decision they want to do something different. And so we moved to rural Berryville, Virginia, bought a farm and started raising cattle and pigs and, you know, kind of like a Green Acres type story. <laughs> and we were very unusual because it was a, a pretty conservative, old school type of community. There there weren't a lot of girls and women running farms and working on the weekends and especially people with New York accents coming down. So we were a bit of an anomaly, but that was really transformative for me. In looking back at it, I think how brave and crazy were my parents to do that and then actually really make it work. But that affiliation with animals and that agricultural lifestyle just really influenced like my course of appreciation and 
certainly influenced my career to go into something that had to do with animals. And I also loved cats from the, you know, we had a ton of barn cats and we would play with them for hours. So that probably had some impact on that choice of species to actually study. But then I was also a nerdy kid and went to, um, you know, science engineering school and right about the time that molecular biology was getting started and had the fortune of working in a lab that was doing work on um, human condition called beta thalassemia. And they were looking for the gene defects associated with that, mm -hmm. that blood disease in uh, different populations in Europe. And so that was just fascinating because you got to associate this molecular anomaly with a syndrome that occurred in people. And, and it was like unraveling the molecular mechanisms of disease. So that was really exciting. Um, I ended up after that going to vet school where I then was really from the beginning trying to figure out how to combine these two interests of mine of the, the molecular attributes of disease, why do diseases occur, and what you could observe in, in animals in their disease processes. And then just did a postdoc later on at Johns Hopkins, which was in comparative medicine that really allowed me to start thinking about the differences and similarities between animal and human diseases. And I think most veterinarians end up thinking that way because we learn about the animal diseases. But as I mentioned before, we're all people, right? So we're always thinking, oh, I wonder if that's like what my grandma got or what I have, or, you know, it's, it's just a natural way to start doing that comparative type of thinking which in my case led to, to pursuing that in a research career. So I have to ask you, did, did you have any moments as an undergrad where you struggled? You, you, by the sounds of it, you brought with you an interest in veterinary medicine, even if it was kind of nascent in some ways, right? And then you, you get into the interesting cell and molecular biology world. Did, did you sort of have the, I'm not sure if I want to do the PhD or DVM route and, and what was that like, if, if in fact, and if it wasn't, that's fine too. I'm, I'm just curious about yeah. that undergraduate trajectory a little bit before you got into vet school. Yeah, I wasn't a traditional veterinary student, that's for sure. And I was also would not recommend how I got into veterinary medicine to many people. I, I had this, this approach that, you know, if a student comes through my lab or that I'm interviewing now would say what I would have said when I was interviewing, I would have not accepted them to the lab because my approach was like, well, I'm going to apply to medical school, veterinary school, combined programs and graduate school, and I'll just see where I get in and what feels like a good avenue for me, which in a way is not such a bad way to be thinking, but it's probably not something you should say in the middle of an interview. So yeah. <laughs> I did apply to all those different places. I got into one of each or at least one of each. And it was when I visited the veterinary school I went to, which is was at Virginia Tech, since I was still a Virginia State resident, that was my school where I could get a state tuition. I um, have to interrupt again and say, go Hokies. Right? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I went to graduate school there myself. Yeah. So, yes. so you know that it's it's not really, it's a little bit off the beaten path to get to Blacksburg, Virginia. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. But, um, and I went to, as an undergrad, I was in Pasadena, California. So Berryville, Virginia to Pasadena <laughs> to, to Blacksburg. But um, I, I just felt camaraderie and I felt like I fit in in Virginia Tech with the people I met with um, better than the graduate schools that I visited or the medical schools. It just was a more familiar, um, a little bit more relaxed kind of environment. And 
Um, one of my sisters was going to undergrad there too, so I knew somebody. So again, it was maybe not the most logical decision, but it, it's what felt right for me at the time. And I, I think it was a great decision for me because it's opened just phenomenal number of doors over my career. Blacksburg is one of my favorite places. I, I still say that after it was 30 years ago that I went to there. Yeah. It's quite a while. Yeah. So, so I want you to tell us a little bit about particular individuals that have been influential along your pathway. And, and if you'll indulge me, I'll, I'm going to start by asking about your dad, of course, because mm-hmm. I think that's a great story. But but I'm hoping there, there may be others as well who, whose fingerprints you still sort of carry with you. Sure. Yeah, so my dad was a very distinguished scientist. He worked at the National Cancer Institute. He actually started out his career, got a PhD at Rutgers, and then went to Plum Island and studied foot and mouth disease, and then came to the National Cancer Institute and was one of the early scientists looking at oncogenesis relating to oncogenes. Um, And then the end of his career, he went to um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and started an institute there. So besides being a farmer who would drive tractors and, you know, run around with the cows. Once we moved to the farm, he also was this distinguished scientist. And, and I always identified a lot. My interest in science was clearly tied to his. I think as I got older, I realized I also had a lot of attributes of my mom and my personality. So she was quote unquote, the stay at home mom, but she, she really had been in her early career a very successful administrative assistant. They called them secretaries at the time, but she was had risen very quickly in a, in a corporate position in uh, New York City. And then when she got pregnant with me, she had to quit her job back then. So, but she was very organized and logical thinker and persistent. And you know, I think as I got older, I realized there were traits that she had that I had from her and that my dad, like keeping things organized and getting things done. And, mm-hmm. you know, a, a lot of what I I think is important, important components of my personality um, have been from her. I think beyond that, like in my professional life, I had some great mentors at, at my, in undergrad who really helped me to develop all the sides of my my creativity and interest. Um, one of them being a guy named Ray Owen, who was my freshman advisor. And he kind of adopted me because there weren't too many other kids from agricultural backgrounds at this oh, college. And he um, he wrote me many letters of reference and, and uh, was always a great, great mentor for me. And then when I was doing my postdoc, I had a mentor named Janice Clemens, who um, was a PhD infectious disease researcher, Johns Hopkins, who was just great to have. She had a lab full of mostly women. She was a very successful um, administrator as well as scientist. In fact, she's still running her lab. And she was a great inspiration, great sense of humor, um, and just tough as nails. So she was (laughs) really great at um, as being a shining example of a successful woman scientist. And then at some point in time, CSU was lucky enough to cross your radar screen <laughs> and we, we managed to recruit you out here. So tell us about that. Was this in the Jim Voss days, back in the good old days? Was... Yeah, so I, so my um, comparative medicine. myself there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My comparative medicine training at Johns Hopkins led to specialty in lab animal medicine. So I came here in the early 90s as a 
staff veterinarian in lab animal resources, actually hired by Don Mall, who was reporting then to sure. Judd Harper. Yeah, okay. So that Some was kind of- I also remember. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Ralph Smith was pretty influential. He was at, at the College of Vet Med at the time. He was influential in recruiting me here as well. So I, I was a clinical veterinarian in the lab animal resources unit for a number of years, joined the then Department of Pathology and started doing my cat research work on feline immunodeficiency virus. And then just kind of bounced around. I've had a lot of different careers here at CSU, um, but it managed to stay here. It's just such a, it's a great community. It's a collaborative environment. It's um, amazing place to live and uh, students are great. So it's, I've looked at other jobs, but I've just always found it more advantageous to stay here. And Same here. There's, there's this name in, in the CSU hierarchy that comes from veterinary pathology, as I recall as well, right? Some guy named Tony. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a little disconcerting because Tony was recruited around the same time. He started just a couple of years after I did. And, and I used to, you know, he had some animal experiments. So I was, you know, the, the veterinarian interacted with him a lot on that. And then you know, he just had this meteoric rise. It's kind of like if I bump into him, it's like being at the, the high school reunion where you've got the, you know, the president of Google and then you're, you know, working in the community or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't help but mention. Yeah. So, so CVMBS, of course, has seen some changes over the years. You just hinted at one that, that you know, pathology used to be its own unit. Of course, that, that reorganization is part of in the last 20, 30 years with the history. Talk, talk to us a little bit about, you know, memorable sort of touchstones on your way to becoming a university distinguished professor. That doesn't happen to everybody, obviously. Yeah. Well, I, I moved from my, I guess when I'd been here about four years, you know, I'd been in these series of four-year educational units and, and was thinking, you know, it's time for me to move on. But around that time, you know, I was in a career path that didn't really have a four-year cycle. Um, I had, when I came to CSU, uh, my oldest son was two. I had another child by the, you know, was pretty soon after I arrived here and had a third child within, you know, four or five years of that. I think I was looking for how could I extend my career in this community and started um, a training program in comparative medicine here at CSU. So a way to recruit more people into the field of comparative medicine with an eye towards managing laboratory animal colonies and, and representing uh, veterinary clinical researchers in that realm. So we started a program and we recruited um, an internal candidate for our first resident and then we just started recruiting really outstanding folks who are now leaders in the field. And that program has, is still here under the, the uh, direction of Lon Kendall. It's one of the, the best programs in the country now. And it includes both a experiential and didactic component, but also a research component is a, a piece that we built into the program that ex exists, that that's an important component, whether it's for looking at pain relief in laboratory animals or disease transmission or more basic research that is conducted in the laboratory of one of our investigators, but that's been an important hallmark. And that really got me hooked really on 
training students, particularly veterinary clinicians and researchers. So how do we how do we produce more veterinarians who can use their skill set in that particular realm? And that's been what's led a lot of the other positions that I've taken. Um, I ultimately did the was director of lab animal resources for a few years and then moved into the associate dean for a search position in the College of Vet Med. And that that was a great opportunity to work across all four of our departments and build programs, um, help with infrastructure needs of our faculty, and also collaborate with people like Matt that were associate deans in other colleges and develop these intercollegiate programs. And then after doing that for about a decade, had the opportunity to move into the One Health Institute. And since that's so interdisciplinary, I had this great networking capacity from people I'd met through the years to, to help build that. So it's so been fun. Get better. Yeah. <laughs> big, big future for One Health. <laughs> talk to us a little bit, Sue, about uh, life off campus. So, so we live in this great state. Of course, what, what do you do when you're not here? Tell yes. Us. Well, probably not enough things other <laughs> than work. So I, I've really got into biking since the pandemic in particular, and um, I did live for about, well, over 20 years in the foothills, um, kind of just to the northwest of Loveland, mm -hmm. and moved into, the, into Fort Collins in 2017. So then, since then, I've taken up more of the quote-unquote city sports. So mm -hmm. a lot of biking on the trails. Um, I used to do more skiing, but now I've kind of converted to snowshoeing because... I think in a dollar per unit fun basis, it's probably more fun than skiing because it's it's so much less expensive and it's just something you can get to more easily. And I guess my latest hobby is we got some turkey poults back in May and so we've been raising them and that's, that's somehow attracted wild turkeys in our yard. So we have gobbling going on all over the place. We have wild <laughs> turkeys looking into our windows and we have one, we have one of our hens just laid five eggs. So that's my excitement for the the current uh, chapter of my life, I Multiple guess. Multiple interests. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. A nice callback to your childhood as well. Yes, exactly. So, that's awesome. Yeah. So I, I want to talk just a little bit about um, connections or you know, maybe a better way to think about as opportunities you see for cross-college collaborations and um, you know, since we're hosting this, I'll say let's just talk about health and human sciences. But right. obviously, that broader view I think is important to both of us. But right. thoughts you have on, on scholarly opportunities that are untapped? That yeah, we might work together. yeah. I I think um, there's there's a lot of opportunities with your college in particular um, related to the applied health sciences, obviously, and how that relates to to One Health, um, and whether that's in looking at family human development, human um, animal interactions are one area where we have one um, person, Lorraine Stallones, who's working with One Health Institute is, is coordinating some of those efforts and, and how the human animal bond, um, you know, we think about it with companion animals as being something that can really facilitate well-being and health of humans in a number of different ways. And really thinking about that from the standpoint of what's What's the mechanism behind that and how can we promote that is an interesting field of study. And Lorraine is actually looking at that too in terms of human interaction with um, agricultural species. Sure. And, mm -hmm. and also we have folks on campus that are doing work on human wildlife interactions 
for the better or for the negative on the negative side of things. So I think that's a real unique niche we have here at CSU in terms of having pockets of these different interest areas and activities across campus. That's great. The center, we work closely with the Center for Healthy Aging and the, you know that's a lot of folks in your sure. college are working on that. And um, you know that's a really interesting area to look at in the translational uh, natural animal model space because again, our pets are aging in our households and getting a lot of the same diseases. And can we learn from them? Because they have you know, reasonably long lifespans, much longer than a typical laboratory animal, but not as long as humans. So their disease processes are accelerated. We can observe something over the course of a one year life, you know, one year of a lifespan of a dog or cat that might represent multiple years in human. So that seven in dogs. Yes. yes. <laughs> I know that much. <laughs> yeah. So just, you know, everything from the aging process at the cellular level to imaging to um, physiology. And so there's there's lots of opportunities there. And then I had the we um, the One Health Institute employees went to the Richardson Design Center last fall to have a session there with Laura Malinen. And that was amazing to see to see that facility and the, the interdisciplinary work going on there and just all these light bulbs went off about how possibly post-pandemic in particular we could work um, with that group in terms of identifying solutions that can help with One Health problems and actually fabricating and manufacturing them there in, in that space. So so those are just a few things that come to mind, but just Martin lots of opportunities. Yeah. And yeah. she's in our queue. We'll be talking to her great. for season two as well. So mm -hmm. that's great. Th these observations fit naturally into the segue about all of us having the opportunity to work at a land-grant institution, right? And mm -hmm. so I, much of what we've talked about in the last 40 minutes or so reminds me that, you know, we can look across the state of Colorado for things like chronic wasting disease. You've, you've talked about the environmental impact of the wildfires, of course. Mm -hmm. Domestic animals, you know, are, are, are part of our economy for a lot of people right. as, as it was for you this this is my roots right 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 it's mm -hmm. it's kind of a part of our identity in many ways so i wonder if you might share some reflections on on the privileges opportunities of working at a land-grant institution yeah i think um you know i haven't really been a faculty member at any other university so it's hard for me to really have perspective on what it's like to be here versus another college but i can say that no matter where i've gone to interact with or where I've had opportunities to interact with faculty in different areas or our extension group or, you know, even folks in administration, it's it's such an open door for for everybody to to be able to um, kind of learn and find opportunities for collaboration. And I I don't think there's as much siloed and kind of unilateral type of laboratory research, which I'm, I'm saying that is with a negative connotation, but I I do feel like there's still a lot of need for that type of individual-based research, but I think collaborative research is the wave of the future, not just for One Health, but in many realms, there's just too much to know for one laboratory to be the expert in everything. So I, I think, I don't know whether it's our environment of Colorado promotes that because I think the the medical center um, down at Anschutz, I've found the same kind of openness, which is even more rare, I think, in a medical institution. I think you're right. Yeah. And so um, 
that just plus, you know, walking from building to building or um, driving from campus to campus, it's just hard not to relax when you're in such a an amazing environment. So it's really important for me, and I think it really helps us to recruit people and that appreciate that same kind of environmental ethos. You know, I was just going to use the same word, right? Appreciation is a great <laughs> word. I don't think we can use it too often. You know, it seems, I'm not a social scientist, but, you know, living in Colorado, enjoying whether it's skiing or biking or snowshoeing, you get the stewardship piece impressed upon you in a very non-abstract, <laughs> tangible way, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that helps inform our our interest in, uh, you know, serving the community, right? Even if we are a bench scientist, there's still this, this sense of one eye is looking out the window at, yeah. you know, this environment, this great state we live in. It's pretty neat. Absolutely. Well, Sue, I, I want to say on behalf of the entire college, thanks a ton. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah. yeah it was a pleasure to meet you. You too. Thank you. Yeah. And that's the show. Thank you for listening to another episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Be sure to listen to the rest of season two as well as our episodes from season one. And if you want to learn more about our College of Health and Human Sciences, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.